Good morning. I was tempted just to punt and ask Fred to sing that again for us and just call it a day. Um, Truly ministered in my heart. Um, This morning, uh, it's good to be with you again. For those of you who don't know me, I'm privileged to fellowship with you from time to time and specifically to be able to serve through the teaching of Scripture. And uh, this, even this past week, I was reminded of uh, the blessing of this church when I was with some uh, doctoral candidates at a program I'm going through, and uh, one of the members there knows Kathy from Uganda, <laughs> and uh, he's from Alabama, and just was like, oh, you're in Charleston, do you, you know, I was like, oh, yes, I know, I know Redeemer, yes, I know Kathy, yes, I know Craig, and uh, you're going to make me cry, I miss them already, um, so... Uh, anyway, it's good to be with you again this morning, and I asked Craig if there was anything in particular you were working through or that I could serve you by teaching, and he just said, preach the gospel. So I said, Christ crucified it is. So that's what we're going to preach this morning. I'm going to um, use Romans as an outline for our time, uh, particularly Romans uh, chapter 1. I'll just begin uh, in verse 8 if you want to follow along with me. Here's what St. Paul wrote in his epistle to the church in Rome. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift To strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is God's word. This morning I wanted to focus on this phrase, the gospel, and it is the power of God for salvation. Now, I hope during this time that, like Paul to the church in Rome, I find it interesting. The apostle writes and he says, I hope that we can be mutually encouraged. And so I long to be with you as, I, as Craig had asked me to join you. And uh, I hope that I can impart some gift to you that you may be strengthened. But this is a time of mutual encouragement. And I've already been encouraged by your faith. I hope that I can return the favor this morning. But I want to focus on this phrase, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel. What is the gospel? And how is it God's power in our lives? Do you even believe you still need the gospel? I find it interesting that Paul says to a church that has already received the gospel, that has already believed the gospel, this message, this good news, this declaration of who Jesus is and what he's done. And he says, I want to preach the gospel to you. And they 
Why would he want to do that? Uh, the implication is they still need to hear it. And he, since he can't be there with them to preach it to them, he just writes it to them. And so we get the gospel according to Paul, which is the letter of Romans, the most fully expanded, like until I get there, I just kind of have to just preach the gospel to you the best I know, Cal, with the limitations that I have. So he just writes this great constitution of our faith, declaring the gospel in all of its variants, nuances, and ways, uh, because he still believes that the church, the God's people in Rome, still need the gospel. And so the question for you this morning is, do you believe you still need the gospel? Because Paul is saying that the good news is God's message for all of the bad news in your life. The good news is God's message for all of the bad news in your life. So what's the bad news in your life? Whatever it is, the gospel is God's message to you in addressing that situation. Do you believe that? Do we even know how that's possible? As I uh, wrestled through this, uh, and, and I've oftentimes when you're asked to teach on uh, in an itinerant nature for, and filling in for various pastors and serving various congregations, the temptation is to teach a message that you've taught before, um, to preach a message that you've really honed and um, the difficulty with that is a lot of times messages are for particular congregations and it doesn't serve another congregation in quite the same way because they're different people, right? And, um, and oftentimes I'm tempted to do that, um, quite often, frankly, because it's easier. Um, but I wanted this morning to share with you what I'm, share, what I'm learning uh, in regards to this. And it's been a several-year journey, but I'm continuing to learn and grow in this idea. Uh, and particularly one thing that's been helpful to me in this is a phrase called gospel fluency. Now, gospel fluency may sound weird to you, and in kind of these reformed circles, uh, in maybe a previous generation, sometimes people talked about a worldview. What is your worldview, right? Gospel fluency is a little bit different, but essentially what it's saying or what it's trying to communicate is that the gospel is um, our new native language as people who have put their faith in Jesus. The message and the story of who God is and what he's done through Jesus Christ becomes the way in which we interpret and communicate and think about everything in life. And what made me realize that I was not very fluent in gospel and all of its implications was uh, actually the book of Romans. Because when I think of the book of Romans, I think of justification and maybe the love of God and how God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ dies for us and and really, my only aspect of talking about the gospel was about God's love for us, which is totally part of the gospel. It's a huge part of the gospel. But what I realized, uh, a bigger part of the gospel that I was unable to articulate really into my own heart, into my own family's heart, that needed it at the time was the gospel of hope. And Paul speaks of hope in Romans more than any other place in all of his writings. Romans is the gospel of hope. If you do a word study on it, if you research all the other New Testament writers, if you research all the scripture, the place that you'll find the most said about hope is in the book of Romans. It's not the first thing that would have come to my mind when I thought of Paul's letter to the Romans. 
And I realized I'm not very good at talking about how the gospel gives me hope for my situation, the situation I'm in. And then I realized I kind of was speaking a, a broken gospel language, kind of like my Spanish growing up in Texas. You know, I knew enough to like, mas queso, por favor. <laughs> you know, like, we're, we're making progress. This is good. You know, like, I could, I, I re- realized I had like restaurant Spanish. I could find the bathroom. I could get queso, um, you know, and I could maybe get the meal that I wanted that was on the menu. I, you know, I could get a few things down. But if you put me in a context with just native Spanish speakers, none of them would be so foolish as to believe that I was fluent in Spanish, right? Um, and I realized that in a lot of ways, that was really kind of the way I was with the gospel. I could, I could get through a few things. There was a couple of things that I knew how to communicate. But life and the people I was rubbing shoulders with and the pain and the suffering and the heartache in my own family and circumstances of my neighbors and friends was just much bigger than I had vocabulary to address. And so I I knew a few words of redemption and righteousness and hope and grace and mercy and but I really didn't know how to connect any of that vocabulary in any sort of cogent, helpful way in order to breathe life into my own situation or the hearts of those I cared for. And maybe that's your situation today. When I say something like gospel the message of God is his good news for the bad news in your life and you think of the bad news in your life or you think the things that you struggle with and you go, I don't know how to connect the dots. What I wanted to communicate to you this morning and convince you of is your inability to connect the dots is due to a lack of gospel fluency. The problem isn't that the message isn't relevant. The problem is you don't know how to make it relevant. And connect it back to your situation. I promise you, it is relevant. It's just a matter of discovering how. So as I asked that question, I thought, well, if Paul says this declarative statement, and then he spends so much time, his longest letter that, to any church, explaining this, surely he's going to actually explain all the ways in which the gospel saves us. And then I started reading Romans in a way that was different from every other commentary I'd ever looked at before in my life. I started asking the question, what does this section tell me about how the gospel saves me? What does the gospel save me from? What do I need saving from? And based on what Paul writes to the various, through the various chapters, you discover that the gospel saves you from all sorts of things. It saves me from Idolatry. Idolatry is simply putting my faith and hope in something other than God. Thinking that something in this life, something in this world, will give me value and meaning and worth and satisfaction and provide joy and meet all my needs. That, that maybe if I uh, could just attain a certain status in life or get a certain job or if I, you know, I think the new iPhone is coming out. Maybe that's really going to make me happy, you know. I realize that this is effect, this particular thing is uh, at work in my children's life. When we go to like the store and I, and I say, hey, you've got X number of dollars, so-and-so sent you for your birthday. Grammy, you know, uh, you can pick out 
pick out, you know, Lego. And, and what my kids are doing is thinking, which set will bring me the most joy? Which set will truly fulfill this longing I have, this happiness that, like, infinite playtime will result? And I know that I can give them a new toy, and their room is full of things that they thought would bring them infinite joy. And then have, like, well... That didn't quite scratch the itch I had, and maybe it's a diff- maybe that toy will be the one that brings me happiness. Um, I have Legos on the brain. My kids have Legos on the brain. Um, actually, my son, who's cheering when I say Legos, uh, said to me, hey, "Which church are we going to again?" And I told him, and he's like, "Oh, that's the one with the columns. It looks just like this Lego set I saw." <laughs> so, congratulations! You remind my son of a Lego set. Um, but we have all this beautiful architecture, and maybe, you know, maybe uh, I, I was a church planner for years and, and kind of murmuring in the hearts of some of the people as if we just had our own space. You know, if we had our own space and we didn't have to sit up and tear down every morning, and if we didn't have, like, there's all sorts of ways that we can put our hope in things that are, it's a misplaced hope, right? And the idolatry comes from not believing the truth about God. So what truths do you find hard to believe? Do you find it hard to believe that God could actually meet your needs, that, that knowing him could actually bring you joy, that a greater knowledge of God could bring you greater satisfaction in life? Do you believe that? Does the, tru- the truths that you learn about God, does it lead you to worship? Because that's where Romans 1 starts, is misplaced worship. They knew the truth about God, but they suppressed the God. Instead, they ch- sought to find hope, and truth, and value, and meaning, and worth, and other things. And Paul's going to take us from Romans 1 to Romans 12 through the gospel so that by Romans 12, he's reorienting their worship. In view of the mercy of God, offer yourself a living sacrifice. Offer yourself as a life of worship because of the gospel. I was counseling... Um, a young woman last night whose husband left her and her four kids. And in some ways, uh, this is the same story I could say over and over again. Uh, he has found satisfaction in life and work because it's the only place he feels like he's successful. He's not, he doesn't feel successful as a husband, doesn't feel successful as a father or as a Christian And so he's believed the lie that meaning and value and worth come from being affirmed through what he does, through his job, through his occupation, which is a lie that our culture has believed for years. It's why many women say, well, if meaning and value and worth is found through affirmation and success in the workplace, I want to be successful too. I want to be valued too. And it hasn't just affected the men, it's affected the women And the gospel says, no, meaning and value and worth don't come from those things. They don't come from the approval of others. They come from the love of God. And it's nothing that you can work to achieve. He moves on if you look in chapter 2 that that we're saved from hypocrisy through the gospel of vulnerability. The hypocrisy that we see in Romans chapter 2 is people who profess to do 
and believe something and then actually behave in a way that's hypocritical. Pretending to be someone I'm not. Maybe some of you, that's what you struggle with. That's what um, I heard this husband say. I'm tired of pretending. I've been pretending for, I'm just tired of pretending. What needs do I wish I didn't have and prefer people didn't know I have? Are you pretending? Are you hiding that you have needs? Are you hiding that you're broken? Are you hiding that um, you're not perfect? The church is actually the one place, by the way, that um, admittance is required of its members to admit. (laughs) You know, the one thing that's required from us all is to admit that we're not perfect and that we need help. That's, That's the requirement for membership in Christ's body. So why are you afraid, if that's you, why are you afraid to admit to others what God already knows and we all suspect? (laughs) That we are not Charleston's best and brightest. And that God loves us because, I mean, why wouldn't he? I mean, look at us. But that we should look around and go, I cannot believe God loves you. Actually, just look the person next to you and go, I can't believe God loves you. I look at my wife and I go, I can't believe you love me. But the gospel saves us from the need to pretend. We actually, it saves us from the shame of our sinfulness and our brokenness and our failures and our shortcomings. Do you know that you don't have to pretend in God's house and with God's people? If you feel that you do, then shame on us for making you feel that way. If you feel ashamed in the midst of God's people, then shame on us for making you feel ashamed. Because the gospel does away with shame. Houston has been on my mind lately. That's my hometown. And obviously it's been in the news because of the hurricane. But um, there's a research professor there at the University of Houston, um, Brene Brown, who has written a lot on shame. Um, And she's from all I know, secular and, and, and isn't uh, writing and communicating and giving TED Talks because of her faith. Um, she's just communicating what she's learning about shame and what's needed to overcome shame. And I thought it was interesting that this University of Houston professor and spends over 10 years of her life studying and trying to come up with an antidote for shame. And what she's learning is that connection is why we're here, is what she says. And that shame disconnects us from others. She says that we have to learn that love is greater than heartbreak, that connection is greater than disconnection, that belonging is better than exclusion, that acceptance is greater than rejection. And she says that shame and fear, shame is the fear of being disconnected from other people, of not being accepted, not being connected to them. And that it basically says there's something about me that would make people reject me. I'm not blank enough. Fill in the blank with whatever it is. I'm not smart enough, pretty enough, thin enough. My children aren't disciplined enough. I'm not educated enough. I don't make enough. I don't preach well enough. 
There's something about me. And no one wants to talk about it. And the more you hide it, the more you have it. The less you talk about it, the more shame gains control in your life. And so what she says, which I believe is true, is that in order for connection to happen, that we have to let ourselves be seen. We have to be vulnerable. And she would say excruciatingly vulnerable. We have to be completely honest about who we are. And so she says that wholehearted people, when you do that, that wholehearted people have the courage to tell the story of who we are with our whole heart. Uh, We learn compassion for others. Our prejudices fall away. And that we get connection that we deeply long for. That it's the result of authenticity. That we let go of our disappointment in who we feel like we should be and are free to be who we are. just interesting. She says, a people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they are worthy of love and belonging. The thing that separates is that they believe that they are worthy. Did you hear what she's just said? What allows people to be vulnerable, to be wholehearted people, to live with integrity, that's what wholehearted means, is they have a strong sense of love and belonging. They believe that they're worthy of love and belonging. Their vulnerability is is what makes them beautiful, she says. So is the church a safe place for struggling people? Can we be honest about our struggles? Do we have to pretend that we're better than we are? Or can we be honest? Can we all just be honest that we're not doing as well as we'd like? Can we be honest that we're not doing that which we know we should? Or do we feel the need to pretend that we're someone we're not in order to gain approval for being someone we're not and somehow think that we're really loved? I'm going to pretend to be someone I'm not so that you will approve of me being this fake person. I've seen this over and over again in marriages, in this particular situation, just talking about wanting to be real, not pretending. Because when you pretend, you never feel loved. Do you realize that? The, 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 the deceitfulness of sin in that? Because when I pretend and I put on a mask, who do you love? You love the person I'm pretending to be. So I never actually really feel loved by you. And I feel like if I stop pretending to be this person, if I actually just be me, that you will reject the real me. That's what I'm afraid of, is that you'll reject the real me because you don't really love me. You just love this person I pretend to be. And so we all put on our masks and we all shrivel up inside because we never feel, really feel loved. The thing that we need the most, we prevent ourselves from getting because we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable. What your heart needs is for you to be loved in spite of who you are. Like, my wife loves me. It amazes me. Like before we were married, I pretended to be someone (laughs) worthy of marriage in order to get her to say yes as quick as possible. 
right? And then I uh, was so deceived that I didn't believe that she needed older women to teach her to love me. I mean, I thought she married me because I was irresistible. You need help loving me? I thought that just came naturally. I thought that was just an overflow of, you know, being in my proximity just brought it out of you. You know, I did not know. Why do you need older women to teach you to love me? And then I realized she loved me. That she wasn't fooled by me. That she knew me. She knew all my faults. All my quirks that were annoying that turned into being so much more. And that in spite of me, she loves me. That that's the gospel. My wife loves me like God loves me. And the only way that my wife could love me is because she knows God's love for her. That she doesn't love me unconditionally, she loves me contra-conditionally. That's the gospel. She loves me in spite of me. (laughs) She knows my condition is unlovable. And she loves me anyway. And her kindness leads me to change. Her loving me in spite of me even though she sees the real me, transforms me into God's better version of me. It makes me become the person. I don't have to pretend to be the person. I get to become the person that God intended me to be because I'm being transformed by the love of God through the love of my wife. And it goes the opposite direction as well. I was talking to some men last week about what the definition of masculinity and and the pressure... Our culture puts on what is a man, what is a woman. And in the church, one of the pressures that are put on women, unfortunately, is this Proverbs 31 woman idea. And I did college ministry for a lot of time, and all these single guys are, I'm looking for a Proverbs 31 woman, you know. I'm just, and when I find a woman worthy of my love, then, you know, that Proverbs 31 woman, I'm going to make her mine, you know. And like, like it's this four-leaf clover, you know, it's this thing that's just out there waiting to be discovered. And one day he's going to hit the lottery, But do you realize that the Proverbs 31 woman is the product of a Proverbs 1 through 30 man? She's got kids. She's older. (laughs) There's a reason that he's praised in the gate. She's the product of a husband who has loved his wife well. It's a book. Proverbs is a book written to men, to boys. And the reason that Proverbs 31 women are so rare is because men are fools. And the advice given is, give yourself to wisdom, get wisdom. And then the Proverbs 31 woman, this excellent wife, who can find is a result of a woman who has been cultivated by her husband and loved well and enabled and empowered. That she's been washed by the water of the word. And the gospel has been spoken over her, that the lies have been pulled away The sin that so easily entangles has been cleared and now she's just blossoming and blooming and she's been just coming into full fruition of who God has intended her to be. So women, this morning, that's not something that you have to attain to. It's something that by God's grace and the gospel and the goodness of God's people and your husband and those that are around you and love you well, that as, as you begin to believe these truths that and stop pretending that you have to be something that you're not, 
by God's grace, you actually get to be something that you're not. (laughs) But you don't have to pretend. Here's the good news. And I can't go through all of all the applications in Romans, but in this particular instance of vulnerability, just think about this. In her words, she communicates what makes them vulnerable is what makes them beautiful. Who's the most vulnerable person that you can ever imagine? When I think of vulnerability, I think of a God who took on flesh. who was the definition of beauty, who became ugly. As we sang this morning, these words were so powerful. You were despised and you were rejected. That's what, that's what we fear. <laughs> I don't want to be rejected. That's why I fake it. That's why I'm a hypocrite. That's why I put on a mask. Is I don't want you to reject me. I want you to accept me. I want you to love me. I want you to include me and connect with me and welcome me. And God was despised and rejected. Those who passed by averted their gaze from his sight, Isaiah 53. When it says, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, he who knew no shame took on our shame. He became vulnerable. He had his arms nailed open wide and bore our shame, the ultimate hypocrisy on the cross. And yet that's what makes him so beautiful. That's why the rest of the song goes on. For God has highly exalted your name. He's enthroned you on high. Jesus, the name above all names. It's the most beautiful name. So if you're ashamed this morning, the good news for you is that you have a God who knows shame. He knows shame in a deeper level than you'll ever know. And he knows it for you. You can be a people that have a strong sense of love and belonging and believe that you're worthy of love, in Brene Brown's words. How do you know? I I, I don't understand how this dot isn't connected. I don't know where she thinks this comes from. But people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they're worthy of love and belonging. We are the most people of all people who can believe this. (laughs) Because where does our worth and sense of belonging come from? It comes from a God who knows everything about us and loved us anyway. We are, your dignity, value, and worth comes from whatever God's son's worth was to God the Father. Because that's what he was willing to pay in order to love you, in order to be with you, in order to accept you, in order to receive you, in order to welcome you. You have infinite value, dignity, and worth. And we should believe that. And Paul writes these things, he says, to bring about the obedience of faith. So the issue isn't, is it true? The issue is, are you believing the truth? And are you obeying it? Are you believing it? Are you still hiding. And God says, the good news for you is you don't have to hide. I love you anyway. So if you walk through the rest of Romans, God saves us from pride through the gospel of humility. 
which just means that we all need grace and we all can receive it. That's good news. We're saved from having to perform. We're saved from our works through a gospel of faith. We're not defined by what we've done, but who he is and what he's done. We're saved from God's wrath. We're saved from our sin, which leads to death by the gospel of life. We're saved from the power of sin, from legalism. <laughs> There's some crew staff here that I know. And when, when my wife and I first got married, uh, we went to new staff training with Campus Crusade for Christ, which is like this six-week or so training for all new staff. Six weeks to prepare you for a lifetime of ministry. It doesn't seem quite adequate. Um, But, you know, I have a master divinity, you know, I've mastered divinity now. So, I mean, you know, I'm <laughs> the most absurd degree I've ever heard of. Um, yes, I have mastered divinity. Um, so, anyway, uh, we, so we go, to, we go to staff training, and everyone told us, oh, it's going to be great. You're going to be there as newlyweds. It's just going to be the sweet seat. And they lied. And um, I remember we, we fought. And we would be in these lectures of, you know, 350 people in this huge lecture auditorium learning these deep truths about who God is. You know, it's just like theology, yes. And we would be sitting in the middle of this auditorium just fuming at each other and, uh, and just, just waiting for this to be over, you know. And then we would rush back off to the married dorms. And they'd be like, ah, newlyweds rushing off to the room. like, it's a different kind of heat. It's a different kind of heat. And... Um, and I remember calling the pastor who did our wedding and said, tell me about the Holy Spirit again. Because I really didn't know that I needed the Holy Spirit until I got married. <laughs> the things I want to do, the, the husband I want to be, the vows I made, I just wasn't doing. I just wasn't. And I, and I desperately wanted to be this person, but I couldn't, and I didn't know how. And, uh, you know, it was just, and struggling with the, the hypocrisy thing, you know, because I'm supposed to be, I'm, I get paid to be Christian. I mean, like, you know, I'm a professional Christian, and, you know, I get paid to be a good husband. And, you know, like job security and all sorts of other things were going through my mind. And I was just thinking, this is, we're not starting off well. I mean, the honeymoon, it's supposed to be at least a sweet month. I don't think we made it three weeks, you know, like, and... Paul, and who will save me? And we're told that we, God will give us the Holy Spirit. And as we believe the truths of the gospel, the Holy Spirit blows through like a mighty wind and empowers us. I mean, it's just an amazing truth. You know, some, sometimes people think that the book of Acts is all about the Holy Spirit, but God, the gospel of the Holy Spirit began in the gospel of Luke. Luke's first book that he wrote to Theophilus. He begins with the Holy Spirit front and center. Most people don't really actually realize this, but the author of Acts wrote the gospel according to Luke. It's the same guy. And the Holy Spirit and our, the good news of the Holy Spirit coming is front and center. It says that John in Luke 1 is going to be filled from the Holy, with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, that Mary was 
um, told that the Holy Spirit would come upon her, that Elizabeth was filled from the Holy Spirit, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. Simeon says the Spirit was upon him, and it was the Holy Spirit revealed things to him, and he came with in the power of the Spirit into the temple. And you haven't even gotten all that, and you haven't even gotten out of Luke chapter 2 yet. And then it says that Jesus was baptized with the Holy Spirit. It descended upon him that he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's part of the good news of his ministry, that he returned full of the Holy Spirit from his temptations, from his baptisms, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness by his temptations, that after that he returned again in the power of the Holy Spirit, and then he began his ministry saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And we've only got to Luke chapter 4. I mean, the Holy Spirit is good news for people who think that I've got, I, like, I, for some reason the church believes that I know I needed saving, but really it was, that's just a gospel of second chances, and now it's all up to me? No. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the good news that God promises to give you the power of the Holy Spirit and write his law upon your heart, that your heart will be transformed so that you'll do the things that you ought to do out of love and a transformed heart. A professor at seminary told me once, or asked me once, he said, when you leave here, do you think that you will leave here more or less dependent upon the Holy Spirit than when you came? He said, I submit to our, our shame that most leave more dependent on their knowledge of the Greek and the Hebrew, their systematic theology, and their education than on the Holy Spirit. And he says, if that's the case, then we've done you a disservice. So, The good news is you don't have to rely on those things. We're saved from condemnation. If you have relied on those things, (laughs) then right after that he says you're saved from condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have the gospel of adoption. We're saved from the justice of God, the wrath of God. We're saved from independence and rejection and selfishness and judgmentalism and hopelessness and insignificance because we're made a member of his body given gifts to serve other people, that everybody is important. Like It's just all over the book of Romans. All the things that we need saving from, the gospel saves us from. So do we still believe that the gospel is the power of God to save? If we do, we'll keep preaching it. Not only to others, but to ourselves. If we don't, then this parable may be true. You may have heard this parable before. It was circulated in churches uh, earlier when I was a, a, a younger man. If you've heard it before, just humor me. But I think it's appropriate. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude life saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only a boat. But a few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station so that it actually became quite famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted it to become associated with the station and give of their time and their money and their effort to support its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained and the little life-saving station grew. 
Some of the members of the life-saving station became unhappy in time, however, because the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable, suitable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds, and they put better furniture in the now enlarged building so that the life-saving station became actually a beautifully furnished place. They found new uses for it in the context of a sort of club, and actually, over time, few members were now less interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired life-saving crews to do that work on their behalf and in their stead. Now, don't misunderstand. The life-saving motif still prevailed the club's decorations and symbols. There was actually even a liturgical lifeboat, kind of symbolic, more than functional, with, you know, soft lighting. And they kept it in the room where the club initiations were held, for example, so that changes did not necessarily mean the origin was totally lost. And then a large ship was found wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty people. They were sick people. Some of them had black skin. Some of them had yellow skin. The beautiful new club, as you might imagine, was thrown into chaos so that the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where these recent victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside the clubhouse. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities for being so unpleasant and being a hindrance to the established life of the club. So some members insisted on life-saving, though, as their primary purpose, pointing out that, indeed, they were still called a life-saving station. But these few were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all these various kinds of people, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And so they did just that. And as the years passed, the new station down the coast came to experience the very same changes that occurred in the older initial station. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station had to be founded to restore the original purpose. History continued to repeat itself so that now, if you visit the seacoast today, you will find a great number of clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but today most of those people drown. The gospel is God's power to save those who need saving. Some of them are inside this club and some of them are outside of this club. Some of them are inside this church and some are outside of this church. But what we all need to be reminded of is that we all need saving. And it's not a once in a lifetime event, but it's a day upon day activity. And we all need to be saved from various things And the good news is God has given us the gospel in order to save us from all the bad news in our life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us, that you give us hope, that you promise good, That for those who have 
received your love, put their faith in your son, that you promised that all of the bad news in our life is working together for good, and that is good news for us. Father, we are broken people, we are hurting people, we are hypocritical people at times, and Father, we pray that you would allow our hearts to be transformed by your good news, by the love of Jesus, by the ultimate vulnerability. We thank you that though we should be shamed, we need not be ashamed anymore. That there is now no more condemnation for us because of who came to welcome us into your family. Thank you that you make a place for us at your table. That you didn't insist that we get cleaned up before you welcomed us in. But that you welcomed us in as a part of the process of cleaning us up and making us presentable to you. We thank you for our husbands and wives and friends and fellow sufferers on this journey, fellow sojourners on this road. Thank you that we can look around and in awe and amazement say, Jesus loves you too. Isn't that amazing? Amazing grace. Truly is a sweet sound to our ears, Father. Thank you that you remind us of it week in and week out. We pray that you would make, by the power of your spirit, it real to our hearts that we might walk in newness of life today. Through Jesus' name we pray, amen.